Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. I'm Sarah Ivory, your host. Today, we're digging into some local history. A few weeks ago, Tablet Magazine moved north about 30 blocks. Our move was smooth, and we're enjoying our new digs, thanks. But I'm telling you this because it turns out we've landed on an auspicious block. You'd never know it by looking today. The south side of the street is lined by wholesale stores selling body oil and perfume. The north side is given over to wholesale flower sellers, and it pretty much closes up by noon. But at the turn of the last century, this New York City block, I'm talking about West 28th Street between 5th and 6th Avenues, was Tin Pan Alley. It was here that, as an easy-to-miss plaque explains, the business of the American popular song flourished during the first decades of the 20th century. Irving Berlin, George and Ira Gershwin, all of them put in time on this very block. We thought that was kind of exciting, so we invited a connoisseur of New York City, Jim Mackin, to share with us some of the neighborhood's lore. We first met up on our block on West 28th Street. Jim, welcome to Vox Tablet. Oh, thank you. I'm uh, honored to be here with Tablet. This has been a favorite street of mine because it's been ignored for years and years and years and years. And it's much more significant and it's more profound than just the music history that happens here because um, the William Morris Agency had a location on this block. Uh, Emma Goldman had an office here at 55 West 28th Street with her Mother Earth News. Wow. Very dramatic newspaper and radical history. And I remember as a teenager coming into this area because the camera district was here on 32nd Street. One of the most amazing things I thought about this neighborhood was just around the corner, it ain't there anymore, but was the original Fifth Avenue Theater. Thought to be, and and I'm going to try to impress you with some particulars now, (laughs) thought to be the first theater that employed air conditioning. Not modern air conditioning, because we're back in the 1870s, but air conditioning by blowing air over blocks of ice. But it is the theater where Gilbert and Sullivan was introduced to the United States. Pirates of Penzance, for example, premiered here worldwide. They actually premiered it here so that it couldn't be readily copied uh, over to England. Does the cell of that building remain at all, or is it no, completely gone? No, nothing at all. Yeah, that, that one's gone. And what about what are we seeing in terms of this early morning action? Well, <laughs> it's lively from early in the morning, obviously, with the flowers. stuff. the flowers come from all over the world and come onto this corner, this street, and just start moving over and over. I suspect we're seeing, without uh, knowing, the end of the flower day, if, if we can call it that. But it is, is very busy. L- later on, the tourists will start to come down Broadway, which now has like a, like a you know, walking lane, bike lane. And, they'll, and those in the know, mostly people from overseas, Europe, know that that's the place to buy perfumes at real discount prices. I did not know that. Yeah, down here, 28th like to about 27th Street along uh, Broadway. So now going back, though, about a century and a half, when this block was really the home of Tin Pan Alley, right. you don't see any traces of that particularly. No, there are literally no vestiges of Tin Pan Alley, maybe other than the, uh, the fading building facades. Let's go inside and talk more about that. Wonderful. So we're in a quieter place now. And before we go any further, I want to know exactly what was Tin Pan Alley? Tin Pan Alley was thought to be this block where music publishing became very 
popularized and commercialized. For the first time in American musical history, people could get lots and lots and lots of sheet music. It was the primary entertainment of the day. And before this, music publishers were spread all over the United States. There were some famous music publishing houses in Baltimore, Boston, Philadelphia, New York. But starting about 1893 with a fellow named uh, Marcus Whitman, he comes to this street, West 28th Street, and a number of others follow, and they discover that by consolidating the efforts of of music writers in this uh, neighborhood, they could then publish en masse. There are a couple of well-known tunes, if, if you've ever heard of After the Ball. After the ball is over, after the break of day, I think it's 1892, this song sold 5 million sheet music copies. Wow. It might have even gone up to 10 million over its longer history. But that was a number unheard of, even in its day, with a much smaller population uh, at, at the time. Once a young maiden climbed an old man's knee, begged for a story, do uncle please. Why are you single? Why live alone? Have you no babies? Have you no home? People knew that in order to get their, their music, their sheet music widely distributed, they would come to Ten Pin Alley and, and they would engage a music publisher if they liked it to start, um, you know, making it popular. But an essential part of this formula was having a real good pianist who physically here on 28th Street would be at a piano in a, in a wide frame window, which people would see at street level, and they'd be plugging the songs. And this, of course, is what, what leads to these legendary stories about George Gershwin as a, as a teenager playing the piano in, in one of the music publishing houses, as well as the Irving Berlins and the uh, Albert von Tilsers. All, all these people would uh, play the song. They'd play it loudly, and they'd play it over and over and over again until it uh, took, and it would, it would become popular. The legend hasn't reached me. What, what's the legendary story about George Gershwin? I never heard that story. Uh, just that he came here as a teenager. He, he, as well as his brother Ira, were born in New York City. Ira was born in the Lower East Side. George was born, I think, out in, out in uh, Brownsville, Brooklyn. But he came here as a teenager, as a pianist, and he got a job with one of the publishing houses. And by doing that, he, you could imagine the tremendous amount of experience he got by playing these early parlor songs and at the same time beginning to ferment the ideas of uh, some of the songs that, you know, that he would eventually compose. So when these pianists were in these storefront windows playing, they were both working out other people's arrangements and yes. also their own? Yes, exactly. And then people would come by and say, you know, I like that song, That's I right. like this song, hey, do you want to work on this tune? That's exactly right. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And and that kind of harkens back to the very name Tin Pan Alley. There's, there's a story that's um, somewhat uh, accepted but, but also somewhat questioned. Monroe Rosenthal, who was a uh, early music publisher but also a writer, um, supposedly said that, um, gee, when you walk down the street, it kind of sounds like a Tin Pan Alley. <laughs> And that took hold, as, as the story goes, to give it its name. That's probably not true, though. Um, there was a, a street in lower New York City off Rector Street called Tin Pot Alley. It might have been a pun on that. And the name Tin Pan Piano apparently was in use 
to describe a relatively cheap piano since at least the 1850s. Now, what was Irving Berlin's relationship to Tim Alley? Oh, it was heavy. It was strong. Berlin, Israel Baleen is, is his name. I think I've read five biographies of Irving Berlin. He's a real, real favorite of mine. Arguably the largest hit, I'm going to be hyperbolic here, the largest <laughs> hit of the 20th century might be Alexander's Ragtime Band. Come on in here, come on in here, Alexander's Ragtime Band. Come on in here, come on in here, it's the best band in the land. They can play the bugle call like you never heard before. Sounds so natural that they want to go to war. Alexander's Ragtime Band was a, a very transitionally important song going from an earlier era where blacks were kind of downtrodden and, and you think of Cakewalk and the so-called coon songs and the like. And he takes that and brings it into modern jazz age, if you will. And we're talking 1911 as Alexander's Ragtime Band. So that's right in the period when he would have been involved with the Tin Pan Alley Street here where his stuff got published. By 1915, really, Tin Pan Alley had migrated north. Right. Why did that happen? Um, I think it happened just because um, the theater trade had moved north. It, it, it's, we, we've got to adjust our paradigm, if, if you will. Today we take it for granted that we've got you know, radio and internet and TV and whatnot. But in the 1890s, the primary um, media at the time um, was theater you know, was was stuff on the street. Sometimes you might have heard of uh, the Times Square area being called the Great White Way. But the earlier Great White Way was from about 23rd Street up to 34th Street. Along Broadway? Along Broadway. Many, many theaters here. When when we were out on the street, we quickly uh, sidetracked on, on the uh, Fifth Avenue Theater, uh, a legendary theater. So much happened there. But that was one of many, many, many theaters. There were, there were more theaters then than there are today. It, it's hard to imagine. So many of the songs were written for the theater. And we've got to expand our understanding of theater to include vaudeville. So you had a combination of vaudeville. You had very early Broadway theater. Bro- Broadway theater in a modern sense, if you think Rodgers and Hammerstein or even Jerome Kern and Irving Berlin, needs to get formulated. It needs to go from just singing songs on the stage to putting it together with a story and choreography and orchestration and and all of that. Well, um, as that moved north to Broadway, once the New York Times moved from downtown up to Longacre Square, and they renamed it Times Square in 1904, then the theater that used to exist in our neighborhood here around 28th Street starts making a dramatic move, uh, you know, north to 42nd Street through 50th Street. So, Jim, we first came to you by way of another self-taught New York City historian whose name is Walter Grutchfield. And Walter documents the fading commercial signage on the sides of buildings throughout the city. It seems from what I've seen on his site that there were some Jewish garment makers or furriers who also uh, had their workplace on West 28th Street. Do you know anything about that? Uh, just that it's adjacent to the fur district, and you know Walter is is wonderful with his uh, detailed research. So on the website, as you've probably seen, I have it in my notes here. He really talks about the Jacob Hertzes and the Mendel and Hacks and these very specific firms. Uh, they were actually resident in in the Tablet Building. Um, a lot of turnover in that industry. So you'll see even in Walter's notes, there are firms that are here for like two years, and then there's a new firm. 
very dynamic industry, as, as you might imagine. What accounts for these dense one or two block districts of industry? Is that unique to New York City that you have these concentrations? I don't think it's unique to New York City. You know, if, if we wanted to talk about we already talked about districts in this very immediate area, namely flower district, fur district, camera district, perfume district. And I think where these districts tend to happen is is where there's um, uh, uh, small pieces of space that, that can be had so that there's turnover, so, so that uh, anybody can start up a business. The nature of the flower district is, is simply that flowers are brought in and then they're sold the same day for the most part. You know, 90, 98% of their inventory has to be sold the same day. So I think that's, that's kind of what creates this. And the same thing with uh, music publishing along our Tin Pan Alley here. It's, it's a low overhead business. Things come in. Ideas come in and then go right out. You, you don't need much here. You, you need the ability to kind of go in and out. And, you know, it's, it's, it's different from um, like large-scale manufacturing where you need large economies of scale. You need factories. You need like, you know, huge lots or you need access to water or whatever. Um, you know, that's, that's the beauty of New York. I think to, to me this is quintessential New York. It's the small guy's opportunity to do virtually anything. Before we finish, I want to ask you, clearly you've researched and read extensively about the past of New York City. Mm-hmm. What is it that draws you to this history? It's addictive. It is literally addictive. It's narcotic. Once, once you begin researching New York City history, you don't want to stop you know, with Walter, it's been a you know, more than 10-year avocation of just taking those photographs of ghost signage. With me, everything I, I peer into, there's yet another layer. Even with me throwing together some notes for our talk today, there are still follow-ups that I want to do. I, I will not have a good night's sleep until I find out. I, one of the things I found out is Zero Mustel had a painting studio on, on this block at 51 West 28th Street. Are you kidding me, Zero I Mustel? I'm not kidding you. And then he <laughs> died in his apartment at 42. Zero Mustel, of course, the famous actor. The famous actor. Tavia. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> he's, he's, a, he's a legend. I didn't know he painted. He painted, and I don't know enough about that, so I, I will have to follow up on that. <laughs> but he died on this block. He, he lived on this block. So doesn't that speak volumes about some story that we don't know about yet? I want to mention just one other figure because I find him of, of interest historically on the block, and that is um, uh, Harry Von Tilzer. He, he's probably the, the, the most forgotten name that everybody associates with uh, Tin Pan Alley because – he wrote so many songs from, from that area. He wrote Wait Till the Sun Shines Nelly, if you know that. I don't Wait know Wait Till the Sun Shines Nelly. Uh, he, he wrote um, On the Banks of the Wabash, Far Away, which is thought to be the second best sheet-selling music of, of all time. His brother, Albert von Tilzer, wrote Take Me Out to the Ball Game. That I know. So, so <laughs> these are all of, of, of that period. Here, here's the interesting thing about um, von Tilzer, though. He seems to be Jewish. He seems to have changed his name from something like Gambrowski or Gumbrowski. It would be interesting to pursue that. He's not a New York native. He's, he's not the quintessential story of growing up on the Lower East Side or being born in Russia and coming here or whatever. He comes from the Midwest, but a lot of his own past is fabricated. Um, but, so it'll be interesting to follow through with him. 
Well, you have to let us know what happens, what, what we learn about <laughs> him. I've never heard of him, and I want to know more. Jim Mackin, thank you so much for speaking with us. My sincere pleasure. This was such a joy. Jim Mackin is a New York City native. Most Wednesdays, he can be found leading walking tours of one neighborhood or another throughout the city. You can check out his website, weekdaywalks.com, for more information. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivory. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you'll join us again next time.